In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here as always with my co-host, executive producer, and hello, governor, Mike Graham. Well, how you doing today, governor? <laughs> well, we, yeah, I tried, we apologize. I tried <laughs> we apologize to our all of our English uh, and Cockney-speaking listeners. I try my best. That was just terrible. I don't know if we can. I don't know if we can do it worse than Dick Van Dyke, though. I think we're still okay. And I've I've heard uh, criticisms already of Mr. Lin Manuel's Cockney in the new one, but but here oh, we no. are. It, we can't it's be worse. The curse of Mary Poppins. It's really tough. And uh, so, speaking of Mary Poppins, that is the movie we are excited to be talking to you all about today. That's right. We're doing the 1964 Mary Poppins. Actually, the the new one, the reimagining of Mary Poppins is coming out, I think, on... The 19th. Wednesday. Yep. Tomorrow. We're recording this on Monday, so this coming out in two days. That's right. And it's an, it's not a reimagining, Mike. It is a true-to-form sequel. It's a sequel? It absolutely is a sequel, because Mary Poppins returns. Oh, gosh. Uh, you can tell that I did my research today. <laughs> well, that's all right. We're going to get into, into talking about the movie, but up front, we do want to address... Uh, you know, a, a sort of serious issue that's going on in the world of mental health right now. So, yeah. So, Mike, uh, I know you had some particular feelings about this. So why don't you set us up? Absolutely. OK, so this this actually really hit home with me. <clears throat> it's some stuff that kind of happened on the the Internet and which, you know, most of us exist out there right now. But if uh, you don't know who he is, but Pete Davidson from SNL just this last week on his Instagram account Uh, posted a post, and it was a very serious post to which he said, and, and I'm not going to paraphrase, I'll read this directly. He said, I'm doing my best to stay here for you, but I actually don't know how much longer I can last. All I've ever tried to do was help people. Just remember I told you so. So Pete Davidson in the past has been very public about his mental health issues. Uh, He's lauded by a lot of people that are supporters of that. And so, you know, he came out and said these things. We don't know why he said these things. However, what we're talking about with this today is that just a couple of days ago, uh, before recording today, we I saw on my Facebook feed a public post about this, and there were several, several replies to it, and many of them uh, were the opposite of what I would hope they would be. In fact, they were... They were downright angry and mean and saying things like Pete Davidson is weak and he's just a druggie and, you know, I'm not going to use the curse words that they used. But the reason we wanted to talk about it today that we think it's important is, well, one, was my reaction to it and and two, it hopefully help people not react that way when they see these things happen. Yeah, so as a therapist, it, it's... 
you know, one of the reasons I unfortunately find myself discouraging people sometimes from talking about their mental health issues online. Um, you know, obviously there are forums where it is supported and encouraged, but there are just as many, unfortunately, if not more forums where you'll get these types of really negative, toxic responses. It's just unfortunate because, you know, we live in this age where you see so many people saying mental health awareness in the stigma, you know, keep talking mental health. And then some people's reactions to that I've even seen has been like, oh, everything is about mental health these days and all this stuff. But you know why it's still about mental health? It's because of this exact thing. Yep. That people can't, you know, talk about a very serious issue or just be vulnerable in public without being, you know, essentially ridiculed and and even taunted for it. So we are being a part of the mental health community, you know, obviously support people like Pete Davidson who are willing to talk about their mental health issues in whatever format they're comfortable doing so. Yeah. And I'll go as far as to say, so I got into this thread and I saw these posts, uh, specifically a couple of people. I'm not going to say any names, of course. I, actually, I didn't even know them, like, personally. But, you know, I, I haven't been feeling super good this season. And it hit, It was sort of late at night, and it just hit me in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, Ryan, I came, like, I came out of the cage, like, firing at them. And not in any way that's going to do any good or change any minds. I'm talking, I came out cursing and threatening and belittling about these people's belittling and cursing and angry reactions to Pete Davidson. And, uh, I mean, it's tough, you know? Yeah. So it just kind of feeds upon itself. Once, once you have that really negative, uh, conversation started, and this is what you see on the internet in the in the comments section everywhere is that you know all it takes is a couple people being negative about this kind of stuff and then it's hard to then turn that into a positive conversation. Yeah, it is. I mean, if I had come out of the gate and I think the reason we want to talk about this is because we have to handle these things anybody in this community, any supporter of this, we have to handle these things appropriately if we want to change minds. So I did it the wrong way, and I think it's a good example of how not to do it. Come out, I came out, you know, yelling and screaming at these people, and I did apologize to them uh, without them asking for an apology. I realized in the middle of how I was acting that it was the wrong way to do it, and I told them, you know, how I, I shouldn't be saying these things to you guys. These are real issues. We really need to learn how to talk about these things. I hope that you can learn about these things and, you know, so I did back off, but because of how I approached it, one of these people is still sending me private messages and taunting me over this whole thing and calling me weak and all these things, because I admitted in the thread too, that I have the, I like what Pete Davidson said, I have verbatim said to my wife and sister and everybody. And I mean, I mean, it literally breaks my heart when I see somebody struggling like that. I don't know, you know, it just get you get riled up real bad when you see people just being so insensitive, but I just don't think, I just don't think we should approach it the way I did. And I hope, I hope someone can learn a lesson from the wrong way I approached because I did not change anybody's minds. Well, and right. And, and to the extent that we even necessarily want to change minds versus, you know, giving our energy and, and our support to the people that, that are using these forums in the right way. So, you know, we, we talk about how to cope with like trolls on the internet you know, in general, but especially in dealing with mental health issues, because we have that choice to be able to say, 
oh my god, like that guy said something that really pissed me off. Like I want to respond to him. And you can, obviously we can, and there's that desire to change their mind to to help them understand what's really happening. Yeah, and it's huge. It's like a fire inside yeah. of you. Yeah. But the reality is is that that energy that you feel, that anger even to your point is not going to create a positive result. You know, right. and and you and I were talking off air before and sort of now that that recognition, it's like, okay, you know, maybe I should back off, maybe I should apologize, maybe I should just sort of treat this person with kindness. But once that anger is like the the sort of first tool that's used, there's no coming back from that. I would right. say most of the time. Yep. That's why I'm still dealing with private messages from one of the particular people. But I just want to point out what Ryan and I do is we're joining the fight with thousands and thousands and thousands of other people that are doing this. And I, I mean, from my perspective, I don't know if you feel this way, Ryan, but sometimes I'm like, you know, we're pushing this thing. Uh it can make some people feel uncomfortable, but if you're ever feeling as, and this is directly to the people out there that are talking about the same stuff that we're talking about. If you're ever feeling like, Oh, maybe I'm getting on people's nerves or, you know, maybe I should, you know, talk about some other things for a while. Like don't like keep pushing it because this is just a shining example that we have to keep talking about it. Yeah. And, and I absolutely agree. And what I tell my patients when they are sort of weighing how to be vulnerable is, you know, there is a certain amount of of sort of weighing risks and benefits with who do I go to when I'm trying to be vulnerable. You know, being vulnerable to the public social media obviously has risks, but that doesn't mean that there aren't also benefits. So you kind of right. just you kind of just have to weigh them and and be willing to kind of take the benefits and and throw out the negative responses. We saw today. I think Pete Davidson has deleted his social media, so that's obviously the that's take. Right. The taking away the the lessons that he's um, deciding to to take away from that experience, and and who could blame him, right? Right. I mean, and it's scary because, I mean, what is he doing right now? You know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, that could be just simple embarrassment, which he shouldn't be embarrassed. But no, not at all. But because I mean, I think everyone thinks that kind of stuff, and some people have it worse than others, and some people like Pete Davidson have real issues, but he's embarrassed or, or whatever anyway. But then there's also that part of you that thinks I'm kind of scared. Like, what is he doing right now? Yeah. So we, so. we can hope that he's using the rest of his support system, whatever that might be. And, you know, for the rest of us, and this is a shameless plug, but it's, it's honest as well. You know, the Facebook that we, the Facebook group that we created for this show is, is incredible. in it's support, you know, we've had people come in and share their, you know, just incredible personal stories and struggling yeah. with mental health. And just to yeah. see the support that the rest of our group members offer people who decide to share those stories. So I'm not going to share any names, but thank you to everyone who's been willing yeah. to share their stories on our Facebook group. It's really, really incredible to see how supportive everybody is. I know we've talked about this up front in the last few episodes, but it's it's really been just that great. It's been like the greatest yep. part of doing this show is the people are coming and joining this thing and supporting each other. It's really great. Anyway, go to go to Facebook and search uh, Pop Psych 101 Mental Health Chat if you if you want to come to that group. But yeah. Yeah. So so that being said, you know, we hope obviously everybody finds a successful way to take care of themselves, you know, whether it's on social media, if you find a, a comfortable place to do that or in your own lives with your family, friends um, or other people who are going to have, you know, a, a better ability to support you in the way you're looking for. 
Yep, I think we should. I think we should go ahead and jump into the show and, and just get started. Let's do it. All right, keep talking mental health. Today, we are looking at Walt Disney's mega-hit musical, Mary Poppins, a 1964 fantasy film starring Julie Andrews in her feature film debut as the magical nanny from the clouds, Mary Poppins. A Cockney accent butchering Dick Van Dyke as Bert, the local chimney sweep and street performer, Karen Dotrice as Jane Bakes, and Matthew Garber as Michael Banks, the mischievous siblings in need of a new nanny. David Tomlinson as George Banks, a stern father whose main focus is his career in banking. Finally, Glennis Johns as Winifred Banks, an easily distracted mother and suffragette. The movie. We open up to a fed-up nanny storming out of the Banks household, effectively ending her stay as the Banks' children's caretaker. George and Winifred, the children's parents, immediately buy an advertisement in the paper for a new nanny as their day jobs and social activities afford no time to raise the kids. They ask for the new nanny to be a general-like character who will take no fuss. The kids, however, have a different idea for the person they'll be spending most of their time with. They want a sweet and caring woman who will go easy on them and play lots of games. When their father sees their list of demands, he quickly tears the list up and throws it in the fireplace. 
Doesn't matter. The wishes of Jane and Michael are heard in the clouds, and Mary Poppins answers the call. In an instant, Mary and the kids whisk off to magical adventures to the dismay of their father, who does not like the new cheery atmosphere in his home. After a disastrous outing to the bank with his own children, George Banks begins to reflect on the limited time he has with them and finds a new outlook on how things should go at home. After having done her duty, Mary Poppins returns to the wind and leaves the banks to start over as a more happy and loving family. So, Mike, quite a family dynamic we have here with the Banks family. That's right. And you know what a better dynamic is? The dynamic of my synopsis reading. That's what people come here to see, come here to listen to. Yeah, They of start course. the episode at the synopsis and end it when, it's, when that, I'm done reading it. Yeah, they definitely don't skip through it. Of course not. <laughs> Right, right, right. Okay, so Ryan, we have, we're doing Mary Poppins today. You told me a bit about what you wanted to cover in this, and it was something I actually had never heard of before, but after going into it, it's incredibly interesting. I I was hoping maybe you could kind of describe what we're looking at in Mary Poppins today. Sure. So I suggested play therapy because, you know, we look at the dynamic of the Banks family. You know, obviously they have a nanny, which is sort of like daycare, but But really what's missing for these children is the ability to kind of connect on a on a deeper level in some ways with their parents when they finally get that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But but really just to to have that parent child interaction in a a sort of safe, appropriate way that they're obviously not getting. So so play therapy, you know, provides children with a sort of live dynamic opportunity to let the children sort of express or, or live out interactions that they might be having at home. So I'll give you an example. There are two main types of play therapy, non-directive and directive. So non-directive play therapy is sort of what Mary Poppins does second to cleaning the room, which is basically they jump in this painting and she just says, okay, bye kids, go play in the... What do they yeah. go to? They go to the uh, merry-go-round, the races. right? Or the race, yeah. yeah, they go to the merry-go-round while... While Bert and Mary dance with penguins for Yeah, a while. just like have some time to themselves. So the kids are free to go play. There's no direction. There's no requirements. There's not even any rules. They're not as, there's not even any authority. It's just, okay, we'll see you later. Go have hey, fun. Yeah. D- you know what? You're in charge of yourself here. And th- so that's non-directive, what non-directive play therapy would be. It's basically right. just like, okay, here's some toys, or there's some, some variations in, in actual therapy. There's what we call sand tray right. therapy, which is basically like... You know, here's a bunch of figurines and um, a sand tray. You can do whatever you want with them. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Or here are some blocks we can build. Here we can play Jenga together. It doesn't matter. There's no rules or anything that I need you to do. Versus directive play therapy, which would be a little bit more of the spoonful of sugar cleaning up your room. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's a thing that we need to happen. And here is an easier way we are going to make it happen than you either are used to it happening. In other words... They're used to cleaning up their room being this like painful adversarial mm-hmm. thing, but through play, which could be a result of the way their family like goes about it or fights about it. One hundred percent, yes, yeah, one hundred percent. But it needs to be this sort of easy, free thing that they have more um, agency in, where they get to make the decisions if they're joining in the activity or not, and in so doing, they can then sort of see the benefits in getting the practice done, even if it was through play. Okay. So you're the what you just said there it, it seems like it's pretty obvious what the goal is for the more structured version of play therapy 
But you were talking about the the more open play therapy where it's just like go do your thing and you're sort of waiting in the background and just there. What's the goal? What's the what's the reasoning for doing that type? So it, it, there are two forms here as well, because you can have the patient work on it by themselves. So a common, just like stereotypical example, as I was talking about the sand tray is, you know, a kid might be playing with things, characters, and, you know, you might ask them questions like, oh, what's happening in your sand tray? And the kid might say something like, oh, like this is the daddy and this is the mommy and they're fighting like because this is what kids do. They, oh. they act out the things that they experience in real life. Right. It's like the classic thing in the movie when the kid draws like the dad like far away. Yeah. Or not in the picture. Yeah, absolutely. So but this can be done with anything. This can be right to your point. They can be coloring. They could be using animals. They could be using dolls, hand puppets, cars. You know, these toys are more likely to encourage sort of dramatic play or dramatic even recreations of what they experience in real life. Mm. So that's useful for a therapist to observe because the therapist could then ask questions to the kid. Oh, is that what? mommy does or is that what daddy does and then the kid can without knowing it sort of divulge what their emotional experience is like okay so what are we looking at in mary poppins with the banks children what's what's going on with them why why are we needing play therapy with them so we know from you know listening to some of the the situations that the banks children get themselves into they disappear from time to time Mm -hmm. they sort of torture their previous nannies up until this point you know uh, yes they do pepper in their tea um they're doing all sorts of stuff yeah so it's it's yeah essentially but we can really look at that as like acting out and it's funny in some ways the banks children are very similar to children that might be brought to me for therapy where it's like you know the the parents think they are disrespectful or not listening or misbehaving they feel like they've tried everything so it's so it's difficult for them to it's sort of like the last straw, like, please help my child, please help me help my child. So in that situation, you know, part of what we try to do is to get some background. OK, this is what's been happening. And then we try to identify some ways to reintegrate the child into sort of a healthy dynamic with the parent. Sometimes that's play just with me and the child. Something that's also common now is involving the parents or the family in the play. So that that's something that. Mary Poppins does as well. So she has these sort of initial interactions where she sort of helps the kids get comfortable with her and these sort Mm -hmm. of fantastical examples. But then she turns it back on the dad and says, "Okay, so you're going to take them to work with you. And she does it in a way that, like, makes it seem like this is the dad's idea. Of course. But it does create this opportunity for them to have a healthy, like, normal interaction with their dad, which, as they say to Mary Poppins, like, he's never taken us on an outing before. Right. So... One of the first things you see when the nanny is quitting at the beginning of the movie is, well, the the dad's at work and apparently working long hours. And the the mom, who I do believe is out there doing something important, she's a suffragette and, and raising heck over women's rights, which she absolutely should be. But they these kids have to be taken care of and are spending just so much time away from their parents. What I'm what I'm wondering, what I'm thinking when I see this is, well, of course, the kids are misbehaving, if you want to call it that is they they have acting out. Yeah. Yeah. They're acting out. They you know, they love their parents. Kids, kids love their parents. I just feel for the kids in this situation that they're they're alone a lot with strangers, especially because they're switching nannies so often. And 
I'm just wondering, like, how how do you go about presenting something like this to the adults in this situation and saying, here's your kids, you know, they miss you. They, they, they're doing these things because they're reaching out to you and they want you to acknowledge them. One of the things I'll try to reflect back to the parents is, if you think about the majority of interactions that you have with their children, if you had to quantify them between positive, even like praiseworthy interactions or play interactions versus how many of the interactions are like correcting them, ordering yeah. them, um, directing them, requesting them to do things. Which George Banks does. Well, yeah, or, right. Not even that. But, you know, the, the sort of first interaction we see is that he doesn't even know that the children are missing. And like he's too focused on his own what a British household should be. Great song. To realize that the children's are missing and to realize that there's a problem. So so that's a big thing is that, you know, if the, if the majority of attention that your children are getting from you is you either punishing them or correcting them, like that's when we're going to see this acting out is because they're following this model of this is when I get attention from my parents when they're mad at me, when they are trying to tell me what to do, when they're essentially ordering me around. Right. That's that's from their perspective, you know, whether the parent thinks that's the truth or not, what matters and what a big part of family therapy is, is understanding the other party's perspective. So my big thing, I'm watching the movie and and I'm thinking it's funny that you mentioned how parents will bring their children and say, hey, there's, some, you know, and this is me putting it in, you know, not clinical terms, but there's something wrong with my kid here. Yep. How oftentimes are you in a situation where you find that it's the opposite is the truth? It's hard to say how often. I will put it this way. Every time a child comes into therapy, the family dynamic is part of what we're treating. Yeah. So even even if the parents have been, quote unquote, perfect and like, you know, the model parents, mm. there, there are still opportunities to address the, the interactions between parent and child. So it's almost always the goal to involve the parents in some way, shape, or form, whether that's actual family therapy sessions or even just I'll meet with the parents separately from the child sometimes. And that's why I also enjoyed the interactions between Mary Poppins and even Bert to a certain extent um, with Mr. Banks to be able to sort of give them some insight into what's going mm -hmm. on for the children. So what I'm wondering as a parent when is the point from a professional standpoint where you would hope a mom and a dad or or just a dad or just a mom would come to the realization that we need outside intervention, family intervention? So it can never be too early. It can only be too late. The reason I say that is that, you know, and this is a passion of mine. Obviously, I'm a biased as a therapist, but... By going into therapy or even just getting an evaluation, you can get resources, you can get feedback, because wouldn't it be nice to just go into a therapist, say, you know, here are the things I'm worried about or here are the things I'm stressed about. Wouldn't it be nice for a therapist or a doctor to tell you everything that you're doing is great. This is normal. Keep up the good work. If you want to come in for yourself because you're stressed out by this, that's great, too. Like, wouldn't that be a good feeling? Yeah, no, it would. If you can have that opportunity, you know, obviously resources are limited in, in certain places, and I empathize with people who may not have access to these types of interventions. But if you can, you know, taking your kid to, to go see a, a therapist, like I've had situations like this where, you know, I'll see a kid and, and from my 
professional perspective, the kid is sort of within normal range of, you know, let's say an eight, an eight year old's behavior. You know, right. they, they fool around sometimes kind of like um, Michael Banks. Yeah, he's 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 a little whippersnapper. Yeah, he's precocious. He 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 does pranks. He doesn't listen all the time. For parents, that can be annoying and that can be frustrating. And you can worry mm-hmm. about sort of the direction of that behavior. And and for the record, it's totally possible as a therapist for me to to work with a patient who's just like those are their only problems because maybe right. we we can catch problems like ADD or ADHD really early. Maybe we can catch things like conduct disorder really early. So it doesn't have to evolve to the point of being really problematic for you or your child. So for me, there's, there's no too early. There's only too late. Now we were just talking about situations where you have people coming in or, you know, other therapists have people coming in and you and you see a semi normal family dynamic, maybe some tips and tricks and, but you know, helping them out here on a very light basis. But I am sure that you get an instance or a case where there's going to need to be serious intervention with the, with the actual child. Yes. And what are signs, what are the issues that you see, what are common things that you see where we know that this isn't just misbehavior or mischievousness or just being a little rascal, but there's some deeper things happening with this human. Sure. So I'll give you some examples, you know, and it, and this can be scary for parents, but I've certainly met with families or children who have been expressing some really um, negative thoughts, for example, like they find themselves mm-hmm. thinking about dying or death. But and that that sort of speaks to, you know, today's society that we are sort of confronted with these issues at a younger and younger age. But, you know, another big example is like if your child mentions bullying, Internet bullying, like that is absolutely a first point to be like, all right, let's get you into therapy. Let's get you talking to somebody else, because there's no question these kids are going to be hesitant to talk to parents, teachers, guidance counselors about these issues that might be coming up. So if they're finally coming to you, chances are it's been going on for a little while. Like this is not the first time. It's just the mm-hmm. time that they have finally decided to tell you. So that's always a good opportunity to have like a more, uh, let's say, professional check in. How how does Mary Poppins, what does her intervention do that that helps George Banks get to the point where he's kind of realized he has limited time with his kids as kids? Like, how does her function sort of work? Because, I mean, I think it's pretty apparent that she does something for this family. She does do something for this family. You know, she creates a light structure. So they have gone through these other nannies that have been, you know, pretty firm, it seems, um, in right. trying to control Control being the op- the operative word here, trying to control yeah, well, at the, the request children. of the parents too. That's right, exactly, because that's the sort of way the parents and the nannies are trying to uh, interact with the children. It's this adversarial interaction that that now is is taking place. So Mary Poppins shows up, really being on the side of the children. She's answered the children's ad. That's right, and and to draw the de- the, the comparison with a therapist, if I get a child in therapy. I'm aligning myself with the child. I I will obviously take into consideration whatever concerns or opinions the parent will have, but I am team child. So, and the reason that that's important I'm is... I'm team Edward. Yeah, right. Great. <laughs> so in this case, Mary Poppins is team Jane and Michael. She's not team Mr. and Mrs. Banks. Yep. And that's such an important thing 
for children, especially children in therapy, to experience because that builds trust with an adult authority figure. She is still an authority figure. She still Mm -hmm. helps them take their medicine and clean their room. But it's also this alignment that she is on their side is helping them to sort of take care of themselves and get what they want to. Okay, so if you were to say what a good family dynamic looks like, so if someone's listening and maybe they have questions for reassurance, like what does a good family dynamic look like? The operative word here is attachment styles. And I'm not going to go do like a whole, (laughs) I I could talk about that for, for an hour, so I won't do that. But I want people to think about the sort of attachment style that you have with your child. And this is something that happens to, to different degrees in the movie, you know, because there are times when Michael and Jane run away and mm-hmm. and the, the reaction of the parents to that. And it's very interesting because it's contrasted with the constable. The constable basically says, oh, no, they were just chasing their kite. It was fine. It wasn't their fault. You know, they were perfectly safe. They had a long walk and now they're here. Versus the parents' and I'm reaction. Going, they ran away. <laughs> right. So then that's the parents' reaction of like, you know, no, what they did was wrong. They're in big trouble. So there's this sort of authoritarian attachment style. And and I should say, you know, all these attachment styles are different. They're going to have different results. There's not necessarily, I mean, there is. There, there's sort of a, a generally accepted ideal attachment style. But the purpose is to really be able to create an environment where your children are comfortable leaving you, that they don't need you for everything, but that they also respect your authority. Okay, so if you were to if you were to give or, or sum up, and I'm just talking to the parents out there, I get you know from my perspective, I see things as a parent. What would be the number one skill that you think a parent should like develop? Well, so it's a good question because it's something that I often work on in therapy, as I was mentioning before, is the ability for both the parent and the child to empathize with the other. And oh. and there's actually a really good example of this in the movie, and it comes not from Mary Poppins, but it comes from Bert. So there's an interaction after the sort of uh, traumatizing bank experience that Michael and Jane have. They're running through the town and the back alleys and chased by a dog and creepy old ladies, and then they they magically run into Bert. So they're telling Bert what happens, and I'm so I'm gonna I'm gonna read the interaction because I think it's actually very valuable for parents to hear um, what Bert does for the children. So Jane says, oh, Bert, we're so frightened. Um, Michael says, he brought us to see his bank. He sent the police after us and the army and everything. Bert says, well, now there must be some mistake. Your dad's a fine gentleman and he loves you. So he's trying to sort of challenge this idea that the kids think that their father hates them and is angry at them. Goes on, Bert says, let's sit down, you know, begging your pardon. But the one my heart goes out to is your father. There he is in that cold, heartless bank day after day, hammed in by mounds of cold, heartless money. I don't like to see any living thing caged up. Jane says, father in a cage? Bert explains, they make cages of all sizes and shapes, you know, bank shapes, some of them, carpets and all. Jane says, father's not in trouble, we are. So they're still sort of resisting the idea that their father needs help. And Bert finishes by saying, oh, you're sure about that, are you? Look at it this way. You've got your mother to look after you and Mary Poppins and Constable Jones and me. Who looks after your father? Tell me that. When something terrible happens, what does he do? Bends for himself, he does. Who does he tell about it? No one. Don't blab his troubles at home. He just pushes on at his job, uncomplaining and alone and silent. Michael counters, he's not very silent. But Jane has started to get the message. She says, Michael, be quiet. 
Bert, do you think Father really needs our help? And Bert finalizes in a very therapist way. He says, well, it's not my place to say. I only observe that a father can do with a bit of help. Come on, I'll take you home. And then Bert, in a, a later scene, goes on to talk to Mr. Banks. And he does the same thing with Mr. Banks, trying to get Mr. Banks to empathize both with his children and understand where they're coming from, and actually with Mary Poppins to understand that that she's just trying to help. So Bert's a really effective therapist, and and this this lesson that he's offering to the whole family of being able to empathize with one another is really effective, I think, in the, the sort of ultimate um, epiphany that Mr. Banks and the family are able to come to at the end of the movie. So shout out to Bert, really good job, and to sort of finalize and answer your question, Mike, being able to empathize with and validate your child's experience and vice versa. When I work with children, being able to empathize and, and validate and understand where your parents are coming from is the biggest skill both parties can have. We do have to stop and take a quick break. And we're going to be back with a new segment where Ryan and I are going to debate. And what's it called, Ryan? <laughs> Unpopular opinions. Unpo- okay, yeah, we're going to be back with a new segment where Ryan and I do a little bit of debating. It's called Unpopular Opinions. We'll be right back. You are listening to Pop Psych 101, a show discussing mental health and popular culture through two perspectives, a patient and a therapist. We explore the accuracies of how mental illness is portrayed in movies, books, and television, for better or worse. And now, Unpopular Opinions with Pop Psych 101. All right, Mike, so this is going to be another one of our recurring segments where one of us shares an unpopular opinion about this movie and the other one of us will debate that opinion to the death okay this is to the (laughs) this is to end our lives oh my god it's gonna be well i I don't really want to go so i'm gonna i'm gonna debate pretty hard all right well i'm gonna share my unpopular opinion this week and that is which i teased a little bit in the first half that bert the weird guy that's a chimney sweep and an artist and a musician is a more effective intervener than Mary Poppins. Well, how is that possible? Because the movie's about Mary Poppins. She's the one that comes. She's the nanny. She's in charge. Why Why would Bert be more effective than her? She's the one with the magic. I'll answer your question with a question. <laughs> what lesson or lessons did Mary Poppins teach the children? Uh, she taught them how to take a task that maybe is not fun and learn how to do things that are required of them and make the best out of the situation. There's a lesson that she taught them. So I would argue, and I'm assuming you're referencing a spoonful of sugar. Spoonful of sugar, yeah. We're talking about the spoons where they clean their bedroom. So we're going we're gonna to differ on this slightly because I think I had to take a more literal representation of it. But in the movie, she sort of teaches the kids that you just snap your fingers and then all the cleaning happens. And I'm worried for the children that after Mary Poppins leaves, they're going to go into their dirty room because dirty rooms always go back to being dirty rooms at some point, And they're going to snap their fingers. And Mike, those books are not going to jump into that bookshelf by themselves. I mean, I have to disagree. OK, that's not what the movie's trying to show us. Yeah, no, it's not. It's the first thing she does. She takes them up to the bedroom. She sings a spoonful of sugar and teaches them that if they just change their perspective on things that they 
might not see as the greatest things, reasons why they may be misbehaving and not listening to their parents or their nannies or whatever the situation is, she teaches them that changing their perspective will make things easier. So when they snap their fingers and the things go into the drawers on their own, what that's really just showing us is that because they change their perspectives, and I'll actually give you an example of why I'm right here, is but when they snap their fingers, they're just showing us that now that they've changed their perspective, this is now easy. And they're just showing us in a imaginary way that now this thing is easy. And the reason why we know this is because Jane gets it right away. It's immediate. She's snapping her fingers and things are just because she changes her perspective. Mary Poppins immediately like she's just so kind of um, uh, enamored with this Mary Poppins that she just believes anything she says. So she immediately buys into it. Michael does not. Michael spends most of Spoonful of Sugar figuring out how to snap his fingers, which is a metaphor for him figuring out how to change his perspective. Okay, so so well argued. And what I guess I, guess I would say to that is that whether you're right or not, the more powerful lesson lessons were delivered by Bert. I mentioned in the first half about how he tries to get the kids to understand and, and help them be empath- empathetic towards their father. And that, you know, he's going through things, too, and that they could probably help him go through some of these things. Right. And that that lesson sort of helps them connect with their father in a way that doing their chores is sort of nice, but ultimately is not going to change the larger interaction that they have with their parents. So you're saying that Bert is the better therapist, if that's the way we're going to look at it, or the intervener. It because the lessons he teaches them are more valuable. Let's say that they will have a bigger long-term impact. Huh. Well, I'm not going to concede this, but I'm going to say that you have a good point. Thank you. Because <laughs> I also really like when, um, after all the um, chimney sweeps are done dancing and they come down the chimney, <laughs> the interaction that Mr. Banks and Bert have is is really powerful. Mr. Banks is this sad person that he's upset about the, you know, the possible loss of his job. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's seeing the, the worst of the situation. Bert sings with him and he tells him, uh, though childhood slips like sand through a sieve and all too soon they've grown, they've up and grown and then they've flown and it's too late for you to give just that spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, medicine go down, medicine go down. He is also giving this incredibly valuable lesson to Mr. Banks that even though he has his things that are important to him, that if he doesn't pay attention, if he doesn't connect with his children now, all all opportunities to create long-lasting relationships with them go out the window. Yeah, I'm going to give this one to you uh, because... Like that, that is such an important thing to remember. I mean, I'm even moved just thinking about it. Yep. And if you contrast that with how Mary Poppins treats Mr. Banks, which is that she basically refuses to explain any of her methods. <laughs> yeah. She's just kind of rude to him a little bit. Like yeah, she's, yeah. she's the know-it-all that, you know, so, I mean, I think you have a, I mean, I'm going to concede, I'm going to go to the position. I concede this debate. That is just so valuable. Yeah. Yeah, and the last scene that I want to sort of use as an example, and I appreciate your concession that that you're willing to die now, 
Yeah, well, I guess it's because I die for my kids. How about that? Well, hey, well, hey, you you hey. turned that into a much more sentimental um, perspective, <laughs> and I appreciate that. Well, yeah, I mean, because that moved me. What you said about well, Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. <laughs> no, never I, thought those words were going to come out of my mouth. I appreciate that, but because you know, I think that's something that I try to value as well with my daughter is that as much as important as house chores or or clean rooms or laundry or whatever the things that might get in the way. As important as those things are, you're you're never going to get back these years, you know, my daughter's three, whether it's decorating the Christmas tree or going to see Santa. Like, it's very easy to kind of let go of those things as not being that important. But but man, so important. yeah. And just the, the one last thing, because it actually really hit home for me. Um, Mary Poppins takes the kids um, with Bert to go visit Uncle Albert, who has this like laughing illness. Yes. And, 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 and soon turns to floating. Yes. So he starts floating off the ground because he's laughing so much. And Mary Poppins actually is sort of like a damp on, on the whole situation. Like, I don't know how she's seeing it. Like if he's actually ill and she just wants to discourage everybody from laughing, but she tells the kids not to join in. She tells Bert not to join in and they have such a great time with their tea party on the ceiling. And it's like, isn't that the whole reason that you're here, Mary Poppins, is to let them have fun in a way that they can right. have positive interactions with each other and with adults? So I just don't really get that change of tone from her. I'm a terrible debater. I did. <laughs> you've no, but you've really. I mean, yeah. And because if we go back to the lessons that Bert taught George and the kids, that she's doing the opposite there. She's focused on and getting kind of upset about the kids just simply enjoying themselves. And I mean, as short of time as we as humans have here, like what, what else is there to do? Yeah. Have your tea parties on the ceilings, kids. Yeah. Yep. I agree with that. Point for Ryan. Well, thank you. And so I'll take this first debate, but well, there'll be, let's, let's call it like best of seven or 70. That way we can just keep doing this forever. Well, Ryan, you defeated me um, solidly here. So uh, that was unpopular opinion with Pop Psych 101. All right. Well, guys, uh, we got to start getting out of here. But before we do that, we got to do our ratings. Uh, if you have not listened to the show before, we do rating scale on a scale of one to five. Ryan does one to five somethings based on the accuracy. Today, he's going to do the accuracy of intervention with a family. And I'm going to do one to five stars on the quality and my enjoyment of the movie. Ryan, what's going on? All right, so today I am rating on a scale of five supercalifragilisticexpialidociouses. Okay, I'm not writing that one in the show notes. <laughs> well, we hadn't said it in the episode. I felt like it needed some acknowledgement. So out of five supercalifragilisticexpialidociouses, I'm... I'm you say so, it backwards? <laughs> I'm, they do in the movie, and I don't remember how it is. It's fine. But basically, I, I want to sort of acknowledge... The, the reality of how real uh, an intervention of this is with the family. And unfortunately, like a lot of the movies that we cover, and that's why I think in the new year we plan to do more books and TV shows, you know, a lot of this is like an overnight success. Mary Poppins showed up and after, what, three or four days, like Mr. Banks had this epiphany and everything was better. So to that degree, family therapy is a long, sometimes painful process. So I have to rate this movie a one out of five in terms of realistic 
uh, intervention. And part of that is because, you know, I realized in the early 20th century they didn't have they didn't have family therapists. But also want to acknowledge that, like, nannies probably served that role in a lot of ways. But we can't really jump into cartoons or always literal, literal. Ryan. I'm sorry. Or go dancing on rooftops. I, I, I wish those were real interventions I had access to. And maybe I'm just jealous. But all that being said, we will definitely cover some more realistic family interventions in the future of Pop Psych 101. But for Mary Poppins, I give it a one out of five. Super califragilisticexpialidociouses. Was that our first one? Uh, I maybe. I think that was our, I think that's our first one. All right. Well, I apologize, but it's obviously I have some strong feelings about this movie. Okay. All right. All right, guys. So I'm going to do one out of five stars for the level of awesomeness or not awesomeness of this movie. And because like Ryan said, this movie was released on VHS in 84. I was born in 83. I'm giving this a five. Those songs, I can sing them all day long. Yep. This is a... (laughs) I mean, yeah, I can't view this movie in a negative light. Like, there's nothing, like, it's all perfect because I saw it when I was so young. That makes sense. It it does. I'm with you. And after watching this movie recently, I'm going to have those songs stuck in my head over the whole holiday season, so. I had trouble not singing them as we were talking about parts of the movie. Maybe we can put that in our intro. (laughs) So, yeah, so that's a... That's going to be a five out of five stars for me. But guys, we got to get out of here for the day. And as usual, we just want to say thank you for listening to Pop Psych 101 as much as you guys do. Thank you for sharing and doing all the things that you do with us. Uh, we do need to say thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing much of the music that we use during our episode. You can find him at incompetech.com. Ryan, thank you for talking with me every week. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, listeners. Okay, so we were happy to cover Mary Poppins as its sequel is hitting theaters, and there are important things to remember about family dynamics and family therapy as we take this look at the Banks family. First of all, play is such an important part of childhood, but it can also be used in treatment to help children open up about their feelings. So if you are concerned about your child's behavior or how they are handling different stressors, play therapy can be an important tool to consider. But you don't have to just send your child away to therapy. Being a part of their play and growth experience through an option like family therapy can really help deepen your connection with your child, as the Banks family experiences through the help of Bert and Mary Poppins. Finally, as we talked about in the episode, being able to empathize with your children and validate their experience are two tools that are invaluable as parents. So take a lesson from the Banks family and just go fly a kite. You might be surprised how high it can go. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you as always to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and YouTube at PopPsych101. We are specifically on YouTube for our fans who may be hard of hearing. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. PopPsych101 is not only a podcast, but also a radio show. You can find us on the real-life radio station on Dash Radio. If Dash Radio is not installed on your vehicle, you can also download their app on Android or iOS. For the podcast, we are on all major distribution channels, so please rate, review, and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.